It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week, I speak with one of the people who have taught me personally the most about preaching. I'd never met him before, I never talked to him, but his book, The Four Pages of the Sermon, shaped and determined my own approach and method in the pulpit and continues to do so to this day, 15 years in. I'm speaking with Paul Scott Wilson, who is a professor of homiletics at the University of Toronto and the author of the book, many books, but one of them, The Four Pages of the Sermon. In our conversation, Paul and I talk at length about this book, and we take for granted some familiarity with it, perhaps. I just want to lift up one notion from the book that we don't we assume and don't spend too much time on. That's a mnemonic device that he lifts up in the book. It's called, The Tiny Dog is Now Mine. And what that means, Paul says in the book, is that a sermon should only have one of the following. It should have one text, one theme, one image, one doctrine. It should identify one need in the congregation. It should invite people into one mission, one purpose, one place to go at the conclusion. So that's The Tiny Dog is Now Mine, which I mentioned briefly as we speak. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Paul Scott Wilson. He's a deep thinker, an excellent teacher, and that comes shining through. We got done, and I thought to myself, we spoke on a Saturday morning. I've got the rest of the day off, but I found myself itching to sit down and write a sermon after I spoke with him, and I think you'll probably feel the same. Here he is, Paul Scott Wilson. So, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about the setting in which you're doing ministry now, in which you're teaching? Well, I'm teaching at the University of Toronto as part of Victoria University. It's a we have a consortium of theological schools with about uh, 1,600 students in different degrees in theology uh, amongst the various schools. And I teach at the basic degree level and at the, the advanced doctoral level. And you teach homiletics exclusively? I teach almost exclusively homiletics, yeah. Is Canada experiencing that same post-Christendom, this is a wholly different reality that we're sending you off into reality that the U.S. experiences these days, in the main line at least? Oh, unfortunately it is. Yeah, and, uh, and we, we haven't figured out how to, how really to, to address it. I think one of the, uh, I mean, we've been seeing this decline coming since the 80s, if not the 70s. The 70s, I think we were just wondering what's happening, wondering whether this was a blip, but already by the 1980s it was there were signs that something was shifting, and certainly by the 90s. But what, what has, what has uh, puzzled me is uh, why it took so long for particularly my denomination, but others here in Canada, and uh, same in the States, from what I've seen, how long it took to name it as a crisis. Mm. Um, and, and I've never heard of, of a church as a denomination, setting aside a goal for, for the church for a year, for, say, um, to pray in all the churches, all, all the churches of the denomination, to ask them to pray uh, for discernment about the direction the church should take. I think that would be a useful thing for the church to do sometime. It's a beautiful suggestion. It does seem ecclesiastically 
a little reactionary and panicky sometimes. And and then that leads into a sort of what I'm what I experience at least is either a, a defeatism or this sense, and this might also be a form of defeatism, but this the sense of I'm tired of talking about decline, let's let's proceed to the next thing. And I understand that impulse and subscribe to it at times, but that also feels slightly irresponsible. The reality is, um, you know, this beautiful thing that we've been given is is uh, looking very, very different. Yeah, that's for certain. And, and the thing that I always want to remind myself of, if not my students, is, is that the, the church is, uh, does not belong to us. Church belongs to God. And God will do with the church what God wills to do with the church. And hopefully our own uh, endeavors are in line with what God is planning. So I think openness to the future, I think it's all, we're always a people of hope. So there is a decline, and I think we have to acknowledge it, but it's not, never a decline of, of uh, despair. Uh, but it, it is a decline of urgency. As, as you know, Stanley Harawas and William Willimon and others have articulated this understanding of the decline as, at some level, sort of, well, Harawas has that, that infamous line, God's damning the church and we damn well deserve it, that we shifted our focus and got so in bed with the values and the attitudes of, of liberal culture that we made ourselves irrelevant. So then as a response, the church needs in order to um, to survive, to, to pivot and to explore and, and embrace what makes us unique, which of course is the fact that, that we belong to God. One of the things I take away from your work is a strong emphasis on reclaiming the centrality of God for mainline preaching. Um, the assumptions I'm talking about from Harawas and Willimon, do you share those? Uh, I happen to read all these books at the same time, your books and some of theirs. So in my mind, they're sort of of a part. Do you place yourself in that camp? Well, I, I think they're right in terms of uh, reminding us that the gospel is always something that is um, countercultural and, and that the church as a body has sometimes uh, moved in the direction of um, oh, trying to match the culture too well. Uh, I do think, though, that uh, in addition to what they're saying, I would want to put the emphasis, and I think they would agree, um, I would want to put the emphasis on the church reclaiming the, reclaiming the gospel um, as the heart of its preaching, because in, it, it's remarkable, I've found, in sermons, collections of sermons that I've studied and sermons that I sometimes hear, it's remarkable how little... Uh, the gospel is emphasized. Now, of course, I, I think we're coming from a, a time where people assumed that what the church did was the gospel and what the church spoke was somehow the gospel. And, and, and there's some truth in that use of the word, but I, I like to think of the gospel as being something that's more, uh, more precisely defined, that, that the go gospel has a content. And uh, that cause... The gospel is the saving actions of God where, wherever they're found in the Old Testament or in the New, but the gospel is most clearly seen in the saving actions of Jesus Christ in the cross and resurrection. And we can't then, if I'm following you, just assume, hey, because my church is, is uh, 
I don't know, hosting a youth soccer league, that somehow that's the gospel, right? That there can't be this, right. this automatic equation of the two, that we have, a, we have to do our work to proclaim the gospel. The, the book of yours that um, I feel like I've, I've taken into myself in my own method in the pulpit is the four pages of the sermon. I can't tell you how many times I've placed that book in people's hands. Um, I, <laughs> you owe me some royalties, Paul. Okay. Um, <laughs> I love that book. And um, one of the things that, that – one of the ways I benefited from it was after a few years of preaching, the, the form of my sermons began to feel to me as, as – not that I'm – I don't think of myself as a writer, but, but the literary content, the form, not the content – began to feel a little shiftless and shapeless. Um, and I needed an outline, and I wasn't used to working off of an outline in any kind of writing. And then I read your book, and it gave me this framework that that what's the trouble in the text? What's a corresponding trouble in the world or the context in which one preaches today? Where is the grace in the text? And where is a corresponding grace for our world? For our context, for our church, for the problem that we're that we're trying to address, um, what did in order to get there to that very like surprisingly simple idea? What led you to that? What did you hear that made you think we need to be a little more direct? Mm, yeah, uh, I'm not sure whether to start with a story about my grandmother. Maybe maybe that's where I should start. Uh, when we were children growing up in Alberta, my dad was a minister, and, and we didn't have any relatives out out that way. My grandmother from Northern Ireland would come and visit us every couple of years. And I always anticipated her visits with a, a mixture of feelings. On the one hand, I was I loved her and was glad to see her, and she was a relative, and 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 that was very positive. And then on the other hand, Granny always insisted that we get together for devotions every day. And this was, she would come and visit us during the summer, so I would be out playing baseball with friends on the street or whatever, and, and uh, I would have to come in for these devotional times. And we would read, my sisters and I, from that United Methodist publication, The Upper Room, uh, one of us would read the Bible passage, and one would read the little story, and another would lead the prayer. And um, I, I resented that at the time, and yet as an adult, I have come to so value that time because it was, it was my Granny Scott who first taught me about the meaning of grace. Um, she, I had asked her about how did my grandfather die? I had never met him. He died before I was born. And she told me that he was a minister in in Granby, Quebec, and that uh, he would work on his sermons every morning. And one morning he was up there, and Granny was getting the lunch ready. And by the time that lunch was ready, she called him. He was he he didn't answer, and uh, she called him a second time, Thomas, and again he didn't answer. So the third time she called and didn't get a response. She went upstairs and uh, walked down the hall toward his study, and his study door was closed, and that was normal. Um, and then as she put her hand 
on the doorknob, she heard a distinct voice, and it wasn't his voice. And the voice said, my grace is sufficient unto thee. And she opened the door, and she found her husband dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had been working on his sermon, and he had slumped over the roll-top desk. And she said that because she heard that voice, she was sustained, not just through the time of initial grief and funeral and so on, but she was sustained for the rest of her life because she understood that God's grace was sufficient unto thee. And, and uh, so she was the one who, in those sessions, taught me about grace, about the importance of grace, that grace is, is something that God gives to us. It's, it's unmerited. It's just total free grace and empowerment. It's saving action. It's, it's a strengthening action for our ministries and so on. So when I first began teaching preaching, uh, I was uh, interested in, in uh, the students were doing everything I was, I was hoping they would do. They'd do good exegesis. They'd focus on the Bible, on key words and concepts. They would interact with the, with the Bible uh, and and. They would have a good idea of where they were wanting to go, clear structure, strong metaphors, usually using images from the text. Uh, They were telling stories about today uh, so that people could connect. But there was something about those sermons that left me feeling, at the end of a day of marking them, I would feel, I don't really feel strengthened. I don't feel empowered. And it took me a while to realize that uh, even though a sermon might be based thoroughly in the Bible, it might not, A, be biblical, or B, uh, be about God. Mm. Uh, and, and when I realized that, that God was so often the missing part, the missing component, then it, it uh, drew me to question the way in which preaching had usually been taught. I think the bread and butter sermon for the, the church through the ages has been um, exegesis or, or uh, exposition application. Now, there'd be an introduction before the exposition and some kind of bridge between the exposition and the application to today, and there'd be a conclusion. But basically, it's a two-part movement, uh, Bible to our time. And uh, so I, I thought, now, you know, this form is affecting the kind of preaching that we're doing. Form is not separate from theology. And if, you, if we go to a biblical text only once in the sermon, chances are, nine times out of ten, we will come away with something that we have to do. And I think, mm-hmm. I think there's good reason for that. Uh, we... We don't read the Bible simply to, to have uh, God say you're doing everything just the way you should. We, we read the Bible for some kind of required metanoia, some kind of repentance that's, that's needed, some kind of instruction, change. Karl Barth says that God is speaking to us through Scripture, not just to be heard, but to change us. Oh, yeah, that's so nice. That it's, 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 it talks about the activity of God being 
right involved in the whole process. So if I hear you, the he also says elsewhere, you know, one always has to read the Bible biblically, which I understand to mean one always needs to be looking for the salvific action of God in a given text. Mm-hmm. And and if I hear you that story, which is very moving, of your grandmother's experience of, of the spirit, right, of the voice of God, um, I mean, the the line I trace from that anecdote to the method that you prescribe in the four pages of the sermon is this notion that grace is not a gloss on the good life, but it's directed to a problem, to a crisis, to a loss. Um, is that, is that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, because grace isn't really grace until it meets some issue. Uh, I mean, if we, if, if we began our sermons just preaching about the way in which God has saved us, it would, it would be like water off a duck's back. Uh, probably most of us wouldn't be able to appropriate that. Now, maybe if somebody's in desperate need and they're so in touch with that need, they would receive those words as the sustaining words that they are. But I think most of us need, first of all, to, to have identified for us, to, to be awakened again to the brokenness that is in us and is in the world, to the sin that, that we, uh, that curves us in upon ourselves, as Luther used to say. I think it's very interesting. I was just speaking with another preacher recently who said that she feels as if her congregation, and this could just be a unique setting, but people come in feeling bad about themselves already. So mm-hmm. she doesn't want to spend an inordinate amount of time reminding, setting grace up, right? As you're describing, reminding them of their own brokenness. I've Mm -hmm. found in my own preaching following your method over the years that it's much, much easier for me to write the problem portion of the sermon in the four pages, right? It's much easier for me to, I'll I'll breeze through that. That takes 45 minutes, that that quarter. And it's, and it's very hard and time consuming and soul stretching to 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 find the good news do you know what i'm trying to say to articulate it it's not that it's not there but it's far more elusive in terms of grabbing and naming and lifting up than pointing the finger at myself at our world yeah yeah i think that's true i i think people um, also comprehend much more quickly uh, what the trouble might be. Mm. Uh, but the faith part is always the hard part, and that's the grace part. It's not, it's not grace on its own. It's grace in relationship to the trouble. But it's, it's always this... this um, we're have, as preachers, we're having to speak in faith and confidence about what we know is true of God and what this might look like today. And that's a, that's a big task. And I think page four is the, the hardest one where we're taking look trying to identify what grace is in the world after having discussed the grace in the text in or behind the text the grace isn't always evident in the text i mean i think it i think that depends how you cut the text but the grace is always there if we uh, ask for it if we say what is god doing in or behind this text and for me that's the first question that i have my students ask I, I have them do that even before they start doing exegetical work. 
uh, even before they go to the commentaries, I have them ask, what is God doing in or behind this text? And the reason for that is because many of the commentaries that they go to uh, don't ask that kind of question. It's biblical scholars following their own historical needs for their, their discipline, uh, but not necessarily the needs for faith and not necessarily the needs of the church. But asking that question uh, starts to cue uh, the preacher's mind as to what we are looking for when we're doing exegesis and when we're reading the commentaries. Is there anything that can speak to this that can help us understand it better? So um, I think that's a that's a key a key place of uh, nurture for us, and and it becomes not just a place of nurture for the congregation; it becomes a place of nurture for the preacher, because I, I, in Protestant thought, uh, the spirituality of the preacher has been largely the preparation of sermons for Sunday. Right, that's our spiritual discipline to a large yeah. degree. The, yeah. Here's a, I think that's a beautiful question you ask, not only where is God moving in this text, but also where is God behind it? Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is your intent or not, but for me, one of the things that that insight, the behind it question allowed me to do was to hold together um, my own faith conviction that God is indeed speaking through scripture and the... Uh, historical critical method, yes, which I don't rely upon all that much. But I remember years ago. I mean, I tend to preach more narratively myself. You know, just let's take the text mm-hmm. at its face. Not always, but but that's what I aim toward. But I remember years ago when I was fresh out of seminary, and and the historical critical method was more kind of in my toolbox and more in my mind. Um, having to preach a sermon on the meat eating controversy in First Corinthians. And I read this Marxist analysis of it, which looked at the class dimensions going on in that congregation. And it was really interesting. Um, And then I thought of your question, okay, how is God moving behind this text, behind the composition? Why did Paul have to get at this? And it really turned a key for me. Um, And it's also been very helpful, that notion of how is God moving behind this text when dealing with... um, offensive texts and and hateful ones. Hmm. Um, So I think that's a really important, it adds a a, a whole, it almost feels archaeological in a way. It adds this this deep layer to what we're doing. I I had a a graduate student do a brilliant sermon on um, the beheading of John the Baptist. Now that's a text that would seem to be almost entirely trouble. Yeah. Trouble puts the burden on us. Trouble, trouble requires us to do something, or it, it points to a, a certain way of our being that has to change. And in this case, here's John the Baptist, and he is uh, beheaded. Um, and and he, the student had told me he was going to preach on this text, and I said, well, it sounds, you know, we're, we're wanting a... A, a gracious message. Uh, can you get that? And he said, I think I can. And what he did in preaching it was brilliant. He, he's, he took as his theme sentence. I always think that we should have a th- one theme sentence for the sermon with God as the subject doing an action of grace. Mm. And I, I recommend that the sentence be fairly short so that we can use it 
as many as 10, 12, 15 times in the sermon, so people actually get that that's what the sermon is about. Uh, but this, this student said, chose for his theme sentence, that um, God prepared John the Baptist for his death. And then the application for page, that, so that would be the sentence that governed page three of the sermon. Page four of the sermon would be God prepares us for our death. Uh, so already we start to see the homiletical possibilities. But the reason that he said that he gave for, it, for, for having that theme sentence with that text is that uh, because John the Baptist met Jesus. And that's oh, a beautiful that's thought. Great, yeah. It's just a wonderful way of. Now that's a theological reading of the text that would never come from, from a, a straight historical critical approach. Although the historical critical approach is going to give us lots of details about that text that that will help enrich our description of it. Oh, I love that. Um, the the one theme sentence. That's another thing that you are insistent upon in the four pages of the sermon, and and I think I have this mnemonic memorized. The the tiny dog is now mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one text, one text, one theme, one doctrine. Let's just stop there for a second. I was okay. talking to one of the um, associate pastors at my church about uh, about your method and about your book. Um, and she said, well, I'm not really a doctrinal preacher, um, so that's going to be hard for me. And I thought to myself, well, that's right. I don't always sit down thinking to myself, today I'm going to expound upon soteriology. But what I've found is if I don't go back through at least my first set of ideas when composing a sermon and think, all right, I need to be preaching with some doctrinal clarity here, and I shouldn't be trying to address the question of the importance of the church and the necessity of faith in the same sermon, right? It gets too distracting. So Mm -hmm. even if a person doesn't understand herself or himself as a dogmatic doctrinal Christian, uh, and in my tradition, very few of us do, doctrine is always going to be there, right? It's always going to be. um, So on that one point of doctrine, the question of doctrine in a sermon, can you expound on that a little bit? The importance of not trying to address multiple, like why is that an issue? Yeah, well, I think you've named it, that, that uh, a sermon rapidly spins into excessive complexity for people. And, and uh, one doctrine can be a good discipline for us uh, as a way of staying focused in one place and uh, of thinking, well, there's just something that I'd like to teach here, and there's something about this doctrine will, that will help me. What it does for the preacher, in addition, is it, it uh, encourages us to to um, read some systematic theology or constructive theology every week. For me, one of the things I've found is that that part of the mnemonic, one doctrine, it just stops me from trying to say too much. It's mm-hmm. like the the boundaries in which I'm going to preach this sermon. Not that I, I mean, I like to read theology, but it's not necessarily that I go running to see what Calvin or Bart or someone has said, but sometimes they do, of course, but but rather it's just like the, the playing field. It defines the playing field in which I'm going to, to be operating. Um, so the rest of the mnemonic, the tiny dog is now mine, you also ask us to use one image 
and to identify one need in the congregation and then to set them forth, set a congregation forth with one mission, with one thing that we're called to do. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So after years of listening to me preach this way, one of my very astute uh, (laughs) parishioners, this is years ago, uh, asked me this question and I wanted to share it with you. Now this probably lifts up my own limitations more than it does the limitations of your method. But he said, um, he asked me this, what does it mean to really bring the good news? In practice, it seems to mean apply the Bible to every problem you raise and then declare the problem solved. And, hmm. and what if there's no good news for the problem at hand? Hmm. Um, well, that's a, good, that's a good way of, of, of uh, him putting it and, and of you having listened to him. I think the, uh, the key issue is that the gospel, well, the gospel is both the trouble and the grace. It's, it's, it's the two together. That's mm-hmm. the good news, that the, there's a, a harnessing of the two. But, but in that harnessing, the relationship is not necessarily, it, it very rarely is problem and solution. And I think that's one of the criticisms that, for instance, Tom Long has made of the four pages, that it's problem-solution, which I think is just a misunderstanding of, of uh, what the four pages are actually doing. Uh, it, it's not problem-solution. Uh, the gospel isn't a solution to every problem we have. Rather, when we preach the gospel, we preach people into a relationship. It's into a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's in a, a relationship with the triune God. And, and it's... Um, in the context of that relationship that we will find that many of the problems in our life are solved. But the gospel in itself is not problem-solution. It's problem-relationship. I love that. And, and, and to go back to that story of your grandfather's death, when, when your grandmother experienced grace before she opened that door, it wasn't resuscitation of your grandfather that she experienced, mm-hmm. that death is the problem and now the problem is solved. It was rather a more an intensified relationship with God that would be sufficient to the problem, right? Which is different that's, that's from right. that's erasure. Right. And that's what we're doing every Sunday, I think, is, is calling people back. We're, I think it is important that we identify the trouble. Uh, because many people have masks on, they aren't they they say, oh yeah, I'm fine. But until we, until we, the trouble isn't something that is self-evident. It's part of the relation. It's part of the relationship with God. It's part of the revelation of God to us. It's it's not something that we can presume to know on our own. And that's why we need the biblical text, even for the trouble. But the grace also is what we need. The the uh, God's countering action, because there is always in the Bible some kind of trouble that the people are in, and there's some kind of action that God is doing to redeem them. And it's the same pattern. So what we do at the end of a sermon is we send people out into the world in this relationship. We, we do give an indication of what the mission might be, but we never want to make it into a new law, like you must go to the food bank this week. Uh, that, that would be to turn... Uh, the whole sermon is a miracle. I think sermons are miracles. They're not our actions, they're God's actions, largely. And 
And at the end of the sermon, we don't want to be turning uh, the, the, the wine back into water. We've worked all the way through the sermon, so the water turns into the wine. It's the Holy Spirit's action. And we can we turn make... the wine back into water by, by concluding a sermon with, now go forward and be a better progressive, now go forward and X, Y, Z, right? Yeah, or with any, any kind of you must, you should, you have to, that any kind of thing that puts the burden on us to do the action, that's the definition of trouble. Uh, but rather, the mission at the end of the sermon is an invitation to go forward and find fulfillment in doing these tasks because, as Jesus said at the end of the, of, uh, the gospel, um, tell them that I am going ahead of them into Galilee, and there they will find me. And what is Galilee? A place of ministry. Go to the places of ministry, and there you will see the risen Christ. Go to where you are, where you are exercising your life beyond your own capacity, where you can't give all the love that's needed, where you can't give the forgiveness that, that uh, is demanded. And there you will find the Holy Spirit empowering you to do exactly that. There you will encounter the risen Christ. Mm. And the way, one of the ways in which we encounter the risen Christ is in that enlargement, right? That, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that moment where it's not that I can then be more loving, but it's rather I've been more loving because I've been attended to by the risen Christ. I love that. Yeah, and I think yeah. that notion that the gospel is both and is always going to be both trouble and grace is resolves that tension of, of, of that critique of this is a very simple, you know, a simplistic understanding of how it works, problem, solution. In my life, in my faith life, every single time I've ever encountered Jesus, he's come to me as both the slice and the stitches. Oh, um, yeah. And it's, and I anticipate, you know, there's that, there's that uh, Eastern Orthodox idea that, um, as I understand it, that, you know, everybody's going to go encounter God after we die. And if we've spent our lifetime in opposition to the love of God or the degree to which we have, and of course we all have, that's not going to be comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. And I, so I, I, I anticipate that my whole life long, I mean, into the afterlife, into eternity, um, ultimately the news is good, but the encounter with God is always going to be uncomfortable, right? It's always going right. to be even, it's going to annihilate some part of who we are. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's, that's so true. One, one dimension of, of the four pages that we haven't really talked about is uh, the way in which uh, it's, it's just a basic grammar. I, I think people do tend to treat it as kind of a formula or or it's too simplistic. In fact, I, I had uh, one homiletics teacher once tell me that he, he used the four pages for a while, but then it seemed like it was too easy for the students. I thought that was interesting, uh, but wrong. <laughs> I mean, it does sound easy, but it's a hard thing to do. As you say, when we get to pages three and four in particular, we're really struggling. We're stretching ourselves. We're we're wait I like the fact that in English the word preaching has the word reaching in it. Mm. That 
that we as preachers are reaching for the very word that we're trying to preach. When you when you go out and listen to sermons, not in the classroom, are you preaching on Sunday morning? Do you are you on the road, or do you have a congregation that you preach to regularly, or do you sit in the pew on Sunday? Well, up until a few years ago, my wife had a church, and I was the honorary associate, so I had a regular preaching base. Um, now I'm preaching. Uh, Sunday to Sunday, different places. And uh, this term, I've been preaching nearly every Sunday. Do you find when you're in different pulpits that that old notion that, you know, preaching is a monologue that looks like a dialogue, um, or excuse me, is it preaching is a dialogue that looks like a monologue, and we can't really be effective or deeply effective or as effective as we ultimately will be until we really know our conversation partner well, um, do you find that preaching cold to new congregations, how is that a challenge? Or maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly was a, a, a challenge to me in my early time because people would say, well, you know, you're teaching in a seminary and you're coming out, you're, you're kind of like a fireman who just comes to the emergency situations and it's not really the preaching context. Since then, uh, Early on, I, I, I realized, well, wait a minute, just a minute. Um, it's, it's not quite that. It's true that I don't know when I go into a strange congregation. It's true that I don't know these people. And, and I, I know something from what I've gathered from talking to the minister. But um, fundamentally, I do know them. Because every time I preach, doesn't matter where it is, there's someone with a broken heart, someone whose child is, is ill or dying, someone who's in the midst of a broken relationship, someone who's facing cancer, someone who's got heart troubles, somebody who is lonely, um, somebody who is needing justice. And it's those kinds of deep concerns with which I read the, the uh, biblical text when I'm preparing my sermon. And it's the, to those deep needs at least one of those deep needs that I'm trying to speak. I've got someone in mind, someone who may not even be in that congregation. But if I have, have, if I can make the sermon speak to one person who is a needy person that I've identified, then it can speak to many. I always think that if, if I can't identify even one person, then that's, this is a sermon that doesn't need to be preached. Doesn't, yeah, that's interesting. And it's interesting to think for parish ministers who are preaching to the same group of people week in and week out to I haven't done that in a while to think because I'm you know I know full well not full well but I know very well the heartbreak and the loss and the pain and the need in my congregation on an individual level yeah I don't tend to compose sermons to it so if I'm thinking of like one particularly um you know heart-wrenching situation in the congregation. I'll go visit those people. I'll talk to them. They're in my heart. But I don't necessarily sit down and and preach, try to preach directly to that person. And I don't hear that. That's not precisely what you're saying. But I do but, think... But it's close. Yeah. It's very close. And what I would suggest is that uh, we go and speak to those people. And and in speaking to them, we, we get to a certain depth. And we want to take that depth to page two of the sermon. So we, we may not, and probably advisedly, we don't use their situation on page two. 
But their situation awakens us to other situations that are very similar. And so we mention those on page two and get to the depth and then return to a similar kind of situation on page four, where we show what it what it means now to see God working in the midst of that kind of situation. Where, where, what can we hope for? What, what, what has changed now? That, because one of my theology professors taught me that uh, the cross and resurrection should have made a difference to the world. So what is it? Yeah. It's not just something that happened in the past. How is life different now? And how, and is, it, how is it different for a particular person, right? How is it different yeah. in a particular instance? And that's if it's right. not, if it's just some broad category that does or doesn't have application to each individual life, it's not really the gospel. Yeah. Um, yeah. The purpose of preaching used to be, in the history of preaching, almost always, in almost every denomination, the primary purpose of preaching was uh, to save souls. And in the last couple of centuries, but particularly in the last few decades, other parallel purpose, purposes have, have arisen, um, which include social justice, and, and maybe social justice as a, an expression of salvation uh, that has to do with here and now, experiencing the kingdom of God or the realm of God. But I think another purpose of preaching that we have lost sight of is the beauty of the gospel, that the gospel is something that is very beautiful. There's a coherence to the gospel. There's, it probes the mystery, and it offers people a richer life, uh, a more beautiful life, uh, uh, where even in the dissonance of all the sin and brokenness of the world, there is a harmony that is beginning to build. There's a, a melody that is still straining through that will finally dominate. It's that kind of poetry that I think that uh, we need to... That's part of the reason I think that we as preachers need to think of ourselves as poets in residence. How do we reflect and lift up that beauty without confusing our own prose style for it? Like, How do we get ourselves aligned to the beauty of the gospel as preachers? Well, I think I think it partly has to do with us being able to connect our text with other places in the Bible where similar truths are said. For instance, when when uh, uh, Jesus is anointed with the perfume at at uh, another passage in Second Corinthians, at least in the King James version, speaks of uh, the perfume of Christ or the aroma of Christ that is on each of us. That's a, that's a wonderful notion. And it, you know, there's a kind of poetry, but with the echo between those two texts, David Bartlett talks about the importance of echoes in the Bible and the echoes, I think give a a lot of, uh, a lot of the poetry. So the the beauty is, is, is largely, or, or if I understand you properly, the beauty is to be found not necessarily in a, in a distinct pericope, although certainly some can be beautiful, but rather in the larger coherence and and, and wholeness of the gospel. Yes, yeah. and 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 the unity of God, the the unity that we find in God, holding all things together, working all things for good. That's beautiful indeed, Paul. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a privilege for me to to. Um, probe some of these questions with you. 
Okay, Matt. Well, it's been a real joy for me, and thank you for calling. We'll uh, hopefully converse sometime in the future. I look forward to it. God bless you. Bye-bye. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>